1: Welcome, my name is Michael Johnston and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Dr. Jenny Stuber is here with me today to discuss her new book, Aspen in the American Dream, published by University of California Press, just this year, 2021. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stuber.
0: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here and I appreciate the invitation. So to begin with,
1: how did you go about writing Aspen and the American Dream? What brought you to this book?
0: The, this book, was 45 years in the making, which is, is, is kind of astounding. I like to say that. I'm proud of saying that, that this book is 45 years in the making. And to describe how that's the case, I have to go back to a fateful day, one winter, probably around 1976. And I was just five years old at the time. And I boarded my first plane ever, my first airplane ever. And um, as it turned out, my very first plane ride was on the private jet of pop folk legend John Denver. And that's pretty fantastic for your first plane ride to be on a private plane. But what makes the story even more, I guess, ironic and sociological and the seeds to the story is that while I rode his airplane, I was also a young kid who was on welfare at the time and who was living a very low income family circumstances. So when I went to school that year, kindergarten, first grade, I would be getting my lunch in the free and reduced lunch line. And whenever I would bother my mother, as I'm surely did, for new toys or new clothes, she would tell me that we had to wait until the first of the month when her benefits check came in from the welfare agency. And so Aspen has been part of my life since that fateful plane ride because that's where my dad moved following our parents' divorce. And I've been part of Aspen. I've been traveling to Aspen for the last 45 years. And I describe Aspen as a place where I learned about social class. I got a profound social class education in Aspen. And I think the thing that I learned about uh, social class and how it works in Aspen, which has fueled my sociological career over the last 20 years, is that social capital, cultural capital, and economic capital don't always perfectly line up. And that's especially the case in Aspen where there's lots of people who have very valuable forms of cultural capital, but not necessarily large stocks of economic capital. And so people can have the kind of know-how and cultural tastes of the elites in Aspen, but not necessarily the financial resources that they have, and that allows a very interesting source of class mixing. And those interesting dynamics and forms of class, class mixing and access, paired along with exclusion, have been key themes of my sociological work ever since be- devoting myself to the discipline.
1: Excellent. That's, uh, that goes right into our first question. And, and you were talking about how economic, social, and cultural capital and class do not always necessarily line up. And this is particularly true in Aspen based on the research that uh, um, I read for this discussion today. Um, So could we talk a bit about how those don't line up, but don't necessarily, I don't want to say disadvantage because uh, having a lack of capital uh, creates disadvantage. But um, the interesting thing about Aspen that I saw in your book was that it doesn't necessarily result in complete isolation and segregation and insulation of the rich from the poor. There's a lot of intermixing going on. So could could we talk a bit more about how, or tell me how you observed intermixing occurring in Aspen?
0: Absolutely. So the Aspen that I described is one that traces about a 50-year period, partially just reflecting on my own experiences as a kid, but also drawing on data that I collected in the context of my ethnographic study. And Aspen might be becoming more exclusive and quite different in light of the COVID pandemic, but I'll hold that, I'll bracket that question aside. But I'll say that two things that have characterized Aspen and its place making endeavors and its social class politics endeavors over the last 40 or more years are two thoughts, two processes. And one is this idea of Aspen exceptionalism and people in Aspen really have a great deal of pride and appreciation for what makes Aspen unique and quite different from other resort towns. And so Aspen is different from, for example, Vale. There's a sense of authenticity in Aspen. It was founded as a Victorian-era miner's town. It then evolved in the 1960s and 70s into a sort of bohemian paradise characterized by outlaws, renegade, and cultural creators. And so people have the sense that Aspen is really special. And part of what Butz intersects with that and sort of supports the notion that Aspen is really a spe- special is this idea that I call in my book Aspen egalitarianism. And it is a a lore and an ethos that guides thinking about how social classes do and should relate in Aspen. And Aspen egalitarianism is this idea that while Aspen might be a place of incredible affluence and exclusivity, it is a place where once you arrive, you might uh, reject or uh, take off the signs of your class privilege and seek to intersect and interact with the ordinary locals. That there's a sense of exclusivity there that is also very accessible and very, yeah, kind of not necessarily humble, but you don't seek to show your status displays. Instead, when you're in Aspen, what is of value is interacting with the local artists, the producers um, of art and culture there, even the bartenders, and using that as a form of um, capital of how that operates in Aspen. Now, this is hard to say that this applies today as of 2021 when you see so many Land Rovers and so many fancy cars, but in the past that has not necessarily been the case, but as we all know, COVID has really changed a lot of aspects of affluence as as has the global expansion of capital over the last 40 years.
1: Does that get at the uh, growth machine theory that you um, applied in your understanding of the uh, of the Aspen environment and about how um, a community grows over time? And uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll open the question to you.
0: Yeah, so I approached the project as a scholar of social class and class inequality. And along the way, I acquired new insights and understandings to how urban and community sociologists would look at a place like Aspen. And so I intersect my understanding of how class works in Aspen with a lot of grounding literatures within urban and community sociology. And one of the more, most foremost theories within urban and community sociology since the mid-1970s is the growth machine theory that was principally coined by Harvey Molotch and his colleague John Logan. And the idea behind the growth machine theory is that at their core, What communities and municipalities want to do is expand economically. That communities and cities and towns of every size are hungry to expand, and they work with placemakers of various kinds and stakeholders of various kinds to expand the scope of jobs, the types of jobs, through a continual upgrading and growing process, and that cities are hungry, as I've said. And I kind of stand growth machine theory on its head. I'm not the first person to do that. There's lots of lively conversations about no growth or low growth kinds of communities, especially those out in California that would seek explicitly to limit growth. But Aspen's a really interesting place where it courts a very specific type of development and a very specific type of growth. And that is to say that it has branded itself on a kind of exclusivity that generates really high tax revenues while at the same time staying small and staying accessible and staying limited in the amount and type of development that it allows.
1: So, so what do you think is the grand design um, for, for Aspen, Colorado? Do you because the second part of, of the title of your book has to do with super gentrification. Uh, what does that look like? Is that Aspen or is that, a, or is that a different city?
0: Yeah, so there's two pieces to your, your question and I want to unpack them a little bit one at a time. But okay. I will say to start with the second part of your question is that super gentrification is alive and well in Aspen. Super gentrification simply builds on gentrification gentrification occurs when, let's say, for example, a Gap or an H&M or a Starbucks or a Foot Locker replaces a local store, one that sold watches or did watch repair or was a bodega on the corner. And that's what we think of gentrification as taking place throughout American cities is where the Gap comes in or the H&M or the Starbucks. But what super gentrification looks like is a situation where the gap itself is kicked out, where Banana Republic is kicked out, where J. Crew is kicked out and replaced by businesses like Gucci, Prada, and restaurants whose entrees start at $40. So, super gentrification is alive and well in Aspen. And in some ways, it's an intended and in some ways, it's an unintended consequence of the decisions that urban planners have made in Aspen. And my book, in fact, focuses on the role of urban planners and especially the creation of the land use code, which is a document that every city and municipality has basically that dictates what can be built where. And so over the last 40 to 50 years Aspen has developed a land use code built on limited or low growth what that's meant in practice is that it has maintained a very quaint environment, a very small, approachable, human scale environment, buildings today, new buildings are limited to two stories tall. Buildings cannot have a sort of lot line to lot line development so that they use up every inch of their square footage allotment. What that means is that there is a limited degree of space for developers to build. And so that is, it's community character. It's small, it's cute, it's approachable, it's quaint. What that also means is is that it is incredibly expensive. And so because of the limitation on square footage, the kinds of uh, entities that can afford to build there or land there and rent there have to be places that don't sell, you know, a $5 ice cream cone, that don't even sell a $15 personal pizza. They have to be entities that sell $25,000 watches or $250,000 watches, and things of that nature. And so the grand design has been one characterized by unintended consequences, whereby creating this very beautiful quaint and authentic environment, the community has also protected its value for investors, but at the same time, in some ways, squeezed out the opportunity for its very valued locals. I mentioned notions of Aspen egalitarianism and how valuable locals are seen there. And that has become more and more of a problem over time.
1: Yes. And um, it, it makes it difficult for places like, uh, if I remember right, Gap was one of the um, businesses that has since left Aspen. And uh, um, if I remember correctly, places like uh, Old Navy where it becomes unaffordable because, rent um, is astronomical or it just becomes unaffordable for them to 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 stay there and to do business is is that accurate
0: that's accurate and what you would see unfortunately if you're walking the streets of aspen today are the storefronts inhabited by on the one hand high-end global retailers and aspen has actually fought against those entities that's a chapter that i i pursue in my book is locals fight to restrict international high-end chain retailers like Louis Vuitton and Gucci. What you would also see is art galleries from our, our cities like New York and London having a space in Aspen and a lot of retail space devoted to real estate itself.
1: So what we have is three different constituents. We have, uh, and in some ways, we have the the residents and then we have the business people who may or may not live in Aspen. And then we have government officials and having three different constituents is part of this key concept of your book and the notion of place-based class cultures and, and how it's created at the ground level and within individual spaces. And how does that take place in, in Aspen?
0: Yeah, that's great. So despite this high level of super gentrification that we ta- see taking place in Aspen, my book also centers on a key uh, observation that a healthy Aspen is a place where three key constituents can legitimately claim a space. And those three key constituents would be tourists, high end tourists who maybe come in for a week every year my the second group is also made up by second homeowners. I won't even call them second homeowners. In reality, these are probably third, fourth, and fifth homeowners who happen to have a home in Aspen that they maybe occupy for three months out of the year. And then there are what we're gonna call year-round working locals. And those are the three groups in Aspen that city government is working really hard to ensure that all of them have a place to coexist in Aspen. And they're using the tools of the land use code, urban planning, to make sure that everyone is drawn to Aspen and has a place in Aspen. And the idea, in a sense, is that affluent people and working people have a symbiotic relationship to one another. That working locals add a sense of character to town, while at the same time their presence and their character is appreciated and funded by the elites who come there either for a week or for a few months out of the year. And that those class relations are part of what I call place-based class cultures. And that concept is really the heart and soul of my book. It's what's the novel contribution to my book. And I coined this term place-based class cultures to get at the idea that every place operates, every municipality and community operates according to a a social class logic. And that social class logic is is found at the intersection of narratives that people tell themselves about what this place is like. So local lores about what this community is. And then there's also narratives about social class, and that's who makes up this place and how do they intersect with each other. And then very critically, the third piece of place, it's a terrible word to say, I should have coined a more fluid term. The third piece of place-based class culture is the way in which class relations and class interests are institutionalized within political and economic mechanisms and decisions made about how this place should operate, usually in a governmental sense, but it can be in other senses too, where class interests and interactions are institutionalized. And what I find here is that ultimately, On the one hand, the land use code restricts the amount of land for development and it ensures that those buildings that are built are high quality and cute and attractive to a global clientele. But at the same time, and we haven't mentioned this yet, the people who build those buildings pay a lot of mitigations to the city. And the people who buy the $40 million homes pay a lot of fees to the city. And the city then uses those fees to create an array of programs that benefit working locals. And so it's really important that we we pause on this idea right now is that, uh, and to understand what I'm saying about Aspen, is that Aspen is a place that works really hard to balance the seemingly disparate interests of the social classes that make it up. And so on the one hand, they've used the land use code to mandate a very small, very attractive, very valuable built environment and the culture that surrounds it. And then they also use a set of tools through the land use code and other taxation mechanisms to extract wealth from those who would develop there and those who will buy homes there. And they trickle that money back down to working locals who benefit in substantial ways, principally through an affordable housing program that allows them to live there. Now, if the story that I just told sounds a little bit too romantic and symbiotic, we can unpack the ways in which the relationships between the classes are not that co uh, instrumental and not not that um, beautiful at this point in time. But I wanted to make sure that that's understood is that class interests of both groups, the elites and the working locals, are deeply institutionalized in the land use code and other city policies.
1: And what you're getting at, uh, I think, is is this next question um, slash comment, but the the significance of cultural narratives and how individual narratives frame the place of Aspen, Colorado. And that has to do a lot with how a city is going to be designed, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Is places don't happen out of nowhere. You know, Houston didn't become Houston, or I can name any other city large or small in the United States. And that place doesn't just exist uh, out of nowhere. It's not built out of ether. So any community that we can think of is built in part by narratives about what that place is like. It just turns out that Aspen has a very cohesive, widely agreed upon narrative of what it is like. And so my data or my analysis really focuses on the year of 2016, 2017, When community officials went to the drawing board to rewrite the land use code and they tried to figure out, do we want residences in this area? What kind of buildings do we want over here? What do we want those buildings to look like? How should we require mitigations from the developers who want to build those buildings? What kinds of new parking and transportation mandates are we going to impose on any new development here? So we talk about the 2016-2017 period as rewriting the land use code, which sounds like a really technical, boring uh, exercise. But at every step along the way, the people who are in charge of that business are marshalling and utilizing narratives about what this place is like, alongside narratives about how social class works in this place. And so if Aspen is a place that, that, really believes itself to be exceptional and Aspen really believes itself to be a place that is egalitarian, local officials and other stakeholders are going to use those narratives to um, develop the next step of policies that, that help make that come into being. And so there's this lashing up or this recursive loop between the narratives that communities tell themselves about what they're like and how they actually are, in fact, like that to the degree that they institutionalize those narratives within the code. Now there are moments where those narratives break down, or there's there, there are moments when those narratives are contested, Well, we can acknowledge that, and in some communities it's far more complicated than it is in Aspen, but that's the basic outline of the process that I describe in my work.
1: And then this narrative can change over time, is, is that accurate? And maybe it has changed it slightly yeah. uh, in Aspen?
0: Absolutely. These narratives can change over time and narratives can change over time because broad scale global forces are changing. Um, narratives can change over time because broad scale global forces change the amount and type of capital available. And so if I'm being honest, if I were to write my book today, I think uh, how, how people understand Aspen is going to be quite different. And that's in part of a reflection of the global pandemic that we've seen And just the dramatic influx of money uh, that has come into Aspen in the last year and a half. And the type of people that have come there to escape their cities and to live a slightly more bucolic lifestyle during the pandemic have brought new forms of money, new forms of affluence, and new ways of understanding Aspen into the mix. And so now you see a new host of conflicts and conversations arising over what Aspen will be now and how it will manage newcomers coming to the area who may not understand the old Aspen or what Aspen is at its core, at least according to those who have been there for longer periods of time.
1: And is this even an extra layer beyond the 1970s? Because in your book, it seemed to be the 1970s was a significant, um, a significant decade.
0: Yes. So the, the 1970s were such a significant decade for Aspen. And Hunter S. Thompson, the gonzo journalist and author of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, is the public facing face, I think, of this era of Aspen's development. And he captures a sense of outlaw, stick it to the man, politics and culture. This is the period of time when, I don't know, Aspen sort of got uh, another shot of growth and development. And even though Hunter S. Thompson was the public facing face of this cultural ethos. There were lots of young people coming into Aspen at the time. Some of them and many of them seemingly with college degrees from places like Dartmouth and Yale. And they brought progressive politics, progressive ideas and rich stocks of economic, cultural and social capital with them. But what they did was they situated themselves in local government at the city level and at the county level. And they really imposed policies at that time to limit growth and protect the needs of locals. And so those that period of the 1970s was really critical from my analytics standpoint, because it did institutionalize very initially the affordable housing program, which is very strong and um, quite successful. We could talk about what that means and what its limitations are. And they instituted low growth policies and they instituted High levels of mitigation on those who wanted to develop there, their their spirit did over the years, and so this is sort of the Aspen that people hearken back to, even though, as I think your question hints at, the reality of the 1970s has been eroded over the last 40 some years by the ever expanding nature of global capital and the economic boom and bust cycles that only seem to enrich and embolden. The affluent in our global economy and have been drawn to Aspen and brought their ideas, their culture, and their money to the place.
1: Yes, because erosion doesn't happen overnight, nor does uh, bringing a, a heritage back to a community. It takes place across time, and and I think it begins somewhere and uh, and continues to fluctuate across time. Aspen yesterday and yesteryears likely will not be the same Aspen as today, nor will it be the Aspen of of several years from today.
0: Yes, that's correct. And that's both a reflection of on-the-ground policy making that's happening in real-time in communities, but also things that are happening far away, like deregulation of global capital, or even something as seemingly small as changes in the estate tax, or seemingly small as changes in corporate tax rates or capital gains taxes, any of those things happening um, on a global scale can trickle down into Aspen and have uh, really deep reverberations.
1: But I think what still exists in Aspen in, in some way, shape, or form is this lifestyle mobility that brought people to Aspen. And uh, could you tell me a little a little bit more about what it is that's bringing people to Aspen?
0: Mm-hmm. Aspen draws new people every year. They want to try it out. Not everybody can make it stick and make it work for them. But what's happening in Aspen, especially I want to say over the last 40 years, is this this form of lifestyle migration, which we've seen in especially Mountain West communities over the last 30 years or so. And that happens when people have either more flexibility in their work or when they're young and they want to try out new forms of work and rather than pursue a job, they pursue a lifestyle. So lifestyle migration is migration that's motivated by lifestyle proclivities, finding um, yourself, finding yourself in the context of nature, rather than what we've seen historically, which is economic mobility really motivated by finding a job in a specific place. And so lifestyle migration has been happening to Aspen where people go there because uh, it's beautiful, and they can pursue a lifestyle there that seems to be consistent with jobs that they can get out of college often um, at that point in time and while i'm not able to document the number of people the percentage of people who have to leave aspen because they don't they're not able to make it work for them you find that for the people who are able to make it work for them And it's hard to make Aspen work for a lot of people. One of my respondents said, the lifestyle is great, but the living is hard. And I think that really captures the kinds of trade-offs that a journalist makes when they move to Aspen or an educator makes when they move to Aspen, a social service worker makes when they move to Aspen is the lifestyle is great, but the living is hard. And that's a a trade-off that a lot of people make when they move to Aspen is that they get to hike on their lunch break. They get to go skiing on their lunch break. They get to take their lunch outside and stare up at the mountains and have these incredible experiences and go to live concerts that are free and art events that are free. And meanwhile, they are um, compromising their career trajectories in many ways because the types of jobs that exist are limited. They're limiting their ability to accumulate wealth in the form of home ownership because the free market is simply not available to them to purchase homes in. And in some ways, they may also be compromising their ability to form long-term relationships because like them, they're surrounded by other people who have pursued a lifestyle that's motivated by leisure and self-discovery and self-development. And so there's a lot of trade-offs that people make in order to make the lifestyle in Aspen work.
1: And that's a, even a different experience than the people who just come there to, um, to visit as, uh, as tourists. Is that, is that true?
0: Yeah, and that's right. It's like There are, at the end of the day, um, 7,400 people who live in Aspen. There's 12,000 people who live in Pitkin County. And there's 32,000 people who live in the Roaring Fork Valley. And most of the people work there are, in fact, people who work in law enforcement or work in architecture or work in journalism or work really, really ordinary jobs. And so it's this incredibly glamorous town. Um, but it is, at the end of the day, a town where the median household income is seventy four thousand dollars or it's about seventy thousand dollars. And that's quite remarkable is this very exclusive, glamorous town is really at its core composed of people whose household incomes are not that much higher in terms of a median compared to um, other cities like like Denver or like Boulder or like Salt Lake City. Um, so that's something that I observe in my book too, is how is it that these folks who have moved there to be teachers and social service workers and counselors, et cetera, are able to live there? And that's where I come back to Um, the Affordable Housing Program, and how the the various class interests have had their interests mediated by local government.
1: And and, uh, you bring up this uh, idea of the Aspen State Teachers College. I I don't (laughs) think that's a, that's not a real college, right?
0: (laughs) So I own a t-shirt myself that uh, is Aspen State Teachers College, and it has a crest on it, like a lot of colleges and universities have their crests and their symbols on it. And the notion of the Aspen State Teachers College is a lore that people are so um, beholden to, if you if you know about it. But it was a thing that was developed in the 1970s and it was developed in the 1970s to capture the idea of the freshman class. And, and so I say that my freshman class in Aspen is on the one hand, 1976 and my second freshman class was when I went to work out there in the winter of 1993. And people would mark themselves with the year that they first went to Aspen to work there, usually in a hospitality job or a mountain economy job. And it captured this, just this free flowing lifestyle, Aspen State Teachers College, absolutely not a real college, but something that was memorialized by activities and freshmen and older um, students who would quote unquote, you know, orient newcomers to the way of life in the town. And people really talk about today how Aspen doesn't really have a legitimate freshman class anymore, that it's harder and harder for young college-aged people to come out and try to make Aspen work for them, that the housing really squeezes them out and makes that conviviality uh, increasingly less possible.
1: But what was interesting, uh, and I'm moving away from our our questions that I have here, but the community that was, the, that seems to be developed among the long-term stayers in, in Aspen, like going to different areas of the restaurant where where the business owners make the life a bit more affordable for the people uh, who are staying there long-term, is that an accurate reflection of, of Aspen, at least from when, when you studied it?
0: Yeah, like I just spent two months in Aspen this summer and I just got back a week ago. And to this day, I cannot d- decide whether Aspen is the best place in the world or the worst place in the world. And when I think about it being the worst place in the world, and forgive me for exposing some of my biases. It's a place where you walk down the street and everybody is super thin. Everyone is very attractive. There's a lot of fillers pumped into folks' faces. There's a lot of name brand bags. There's a lot of restaurants that you can't go in unless you wanna spend $15 on a drink and $10 on a side of fries. Um, There's a lot of Range Rovers and these um, G series Mercedes cars that sell for $250,000 for a vehicle. And those are the moments in which I feel especially alienated in Aspen. Personally, I feel alienated from that version of Aspen, and that's when I conclude this place is terrible. There's nowhere I can go, and there's no one like me here. The side of me that that concludes that Aspen is the best place in the world is that when I am there, I personally am happier, and I feel more engaged in ways And so your question is, Aspen has built and the surrounding community has built and utilized its riches to create all sorts of cultural programming that is free for me to enjoy. So I can go to free comedy shows every week. I can go to free um, blues and rock concerts every week. I can go to free uh, classical music by the world's most uh, renowned musicians every week. I can go to art lectures from some of the world's most renowned artists every week and I can go into some restaurants and some restaurants operate a bar menu, which is sort of this this cheaper, more affordable option of food that you can order in a very convivial bar setting. And so there's a lot of ways to gain access to things in this community that I personally don't have access to in my humble, very cost effective life here in Jacksonville, Florida. And so that's one of the things that Aspen has done and has created all of these spaces for mingling across class lines. Now, admittedly those are declining, especially when you talk about retail and when you talk about restaurants, but the mountains are still places for mixing. Many of the music venues are places for mixing and it truly is a paradoxical place that does facilitate engagement across groupings. And I, I, I should say engagement provided that you define those forms of cultural capital to be interesting to you and the kinds of music and comedy may not be of interest to everyone. So I'll, I'll yeah, I'll leave it at that for now.
1: Yeah. It kind of reminded me of a negotiation between economy and culture as to whether or not this lifestyle could exist. All of this free stuff could exist. All of this more, uh, affordable amenities could exist without the wealth that is brought in by the business owners. And part of me says, yes, it, it could exist because it did exist, you know, during the time of Gonzo journalism, during the time of, uh, of Aspen being an escape place for people to go and live a lifestyle without uh, all of the social expectations that they would have elsewhere. That Could that continue into today, into last weekend?
0: Right, right. Maybe. Yeah, I think that, that locals there who are 35 years old now um, would say that my take on the town is a bit romantic. They would say that even in the last five to 10 years, some events that locals used to volunteer at, I'll give you an example. One is the Food and Wine Classic, and that's sponsored by Food and Wine Magazine, and it's it's a mega big event. Um, that draws not just local, not just worldwide celebrity chefs, but people like LeBron James or uh, Dwayne Wade who are involved in the wine industry. It it draws those folks. And that used to be a place where locals could volunteer and also gain access. But locals are now telling me that by volunteering, they don't really get the benefits anymore. They don't get treated well anymore. And so that some of these opportunities in the have have diminished and the culture has changed so while technically on paper a lot of the um, opportunities for engagement and access still exist people will still say that the culture and the tolerance and the genuine embrace of working locals is not what it was when people would say in the 1970s that i would pump gas and then i would go to a party later that night And the people I pumped gas for in their Mercedes are now offering me drinks, something like that. So there is a sense that that kind of cross class interaction has become more stilted, less authentic, and maybe even less possible.
1: Which opens up a a, a second book on Aspen.
0: Yeah. Or at least continued study. Yeah.
1: All right. Unfortunately, um, we're out of time, but we were able to answer all of our, uh, all of the questions that um, we wanted to for, for this book. Uh, Now I want to ask you a a dying question. um, And and that is, what, what are you up to now? What's your next study? What's your next Ah, book?
0: Let's just keep talking about Aspen. Um, I want to say one thing about Aspen and in my book. And I think It's a book that makes a novel contribution in a couple ways. One, it really looks and takes seriously the role of urban planning and structuring class relations. And I'm not sure that that's been accomplished yet, is looking at the role of urban planning and structuring class relations. I think a second thing that the book does is it really articulates that affluent places don't always exclude as the literature would indicate to us that sometimes affluent places have this mystical way of including so i will say that i think those are the two things that the book does that are novel and i'm glad that i've written a novel book i was just promoted to full professor and so that'll take uh, effect next week so in the introduction you introduced me as associate professor which is 100 true as of today but next week i'll be full professor and i am totally and completely completely happy to sit on my laurels for a hot minute because I've published five books. I have three books coming out this year. That's a lot, if, uh, if you didn't know. And it is what I want to do I didn't like know. now is just sit on my laurels. At the same time, I am getting more engaged in some applied scholarship and working with some groups who are interested in rural gentrification and the Mountain West and the kinds of problems that are emerging in the Mountain West that have been accelerated by COVID but I'm going to teach my classes. I am going to engage in some self-care. I'm going to sit on my laurels and then think about what's next for me.
1: Well, that's perfect. And I, I want to be a part of that uh, of that group uh, on rural areas in the Mountain West, not because I studied the Mountain West, but I, I studied the, the Midwest rural areas, which, uh, you know, there might be similarities and some differences there.
0: I'm a Midwest girl. So I, I'm curious to see your own work when it comes out.
1: Excellent. Well, again, thank you for joining me again, Dr. Stuber. And congratulations on your promotion.
0: Thank you. And congratulations on the work that you do. I have to think that you are the most well-read person in the entire nation when it comes to keeping up with sociological scholarship. So thank you for everything that you do for promoting all the work that we do.
1: Thank you. Again, this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Look forward to talking with all of you soon.